the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Jared Royce. Jared is a two-time Paralympian, having competed in London 2012 and Rio 2016 in the T45, uh, T45 classification, sorry. Uh, so welcome on the show, Jared. Thanks, James. Glad to be here, man. Obviously, I was looking at your bio on your website, and, and you say you're not your typical high school track athlete turned professional athlete. So obviously, uh, you were diagnosed with com- compartment syndrome, and you were a track athlete before having your amputation. Talk to us a little bit, what kind of mindset that put you in, obviously having to deal with those circumstances. Yeah, you know, I think uh, most 17-year-old kids have uh, somewhat of a picture of what their next four to six years are going to look like going off into college. You know, for me, it was competing on a collegiate athletic team and, you know, uh, having a good time and uh, not really having to worry about a whole lot. Um, go through the college deal and then maybe have an opportunity to run professionally. You know, that's kind of what the the next path looked like for me. And in my senior year, getting diagnosed with compartment syndrome and, and then, you know, finding myself um, not only not running, but not being able to walk, you know, it, my life kind of got flipped upside down and, you know, definitely faced a lot of challenges, um, you know, obvious physical challenge, challenges, but, um you know, the biggest ones I think were the mental challenges, you know, having to refine my identity. Um, you know, I, I saw myself as an athlete and that was about it. I can tell you right now, I wasn't going to university on uh, academic scholarships. So, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, I had to kind of reevaluate what my life was going to look like, reevaluate the future. And I, and I spent, you know, the next two and a half years, I had a bunch of reconstructive surgeries. It's not like, you know, surgery one, amputation, and I'm, you know, got a prosthetic and I'm back moving around again. I went through two and a half years of total reconstruction, a lot of limb salvage, um, was in a lot of pain. I got addicted to pain medication, was, went down the road of abusing drugs and alcohol and just really, really in a dark place, man. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think at, at some point during that season, I, I really just hit rock bottom and, 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 felt like there's got to be more, you know, there's got to be more to life, um, you know, than, than where I am right now. And, and, uh, you know, started considering um, having an elective amputation and meeting with doctors and, and ultimately came down to the decision that, if, you know, if I wanted to move forward with life, if I wanted to get, you know, be out of pain, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to make a radical decision. Um, but, you know, it, it has proven to be a, be a great one. But in terms of like you say, like a, I love this quote that you've got on your website. You say too many people unfortunately allow life changes to define their existence, and you mm-hmm. say you never let your disability define you. But like talking to you, first of all, it sounds like it kind of did define you a little bit at the beginning. Yeah, man. No, you're you're right on. I, you know, I think that's one of the greatest lessons that I've learned, and and why I can so confidently say that statement is because I was that person. Um, I was letting my circumstances define me for a while. And, and, um, you know, it it took me to to get to rock bottom. It took me to get to a place of really saying, is this really it? 
you know, there's got to be more hoping for more, wanting there to be more and, and, uh, and, and then realizing, you know, what got me here, you know, you know, that yes, there were circumstances outside of my control, but, but I started making a lot of decisions that weren't allowing me to move forward, that weren't allowing me to evolve into the person that I believe I was created to be. And so, um, you know, I had to make a radical decision. I had to make a choice that I was no longer going to let the circumstance that I was in define what my future was going to look like. And, and I, and I believe that that's what led me into a, you know, meeting with the doctor where he looked at me and said, Jared, you, you need to have your leg cut off. And, and I was able to hear that at 19 years old and, and, and see that that was actually good, a good thing. And, and that that would bring hope and, and, and it would allow me to dream again and would allow me to, you know, again, not let where I was in that moment dictate what my future looked like, but, but, you know, take that leap of faith and, uh, and have an opportunity, second chance of life. And in terms of kind of like big dreams, did you always, did you have aspirations of uh, reaching the Paralympic level? Yeah, you know, that uh, that meeting that I had with the doctor when, when he basically told me you, you need to have your leg amputated, that was kind of the first time I took it seriously. Um, the first time I um, started doing some research and literally, man, about an hour and a half after that meeting, I, I found myself on a computer Google Paraly- Googling Paralympic world records. And, and I called my parents in and I was like, guys, I'm going to break these things. I'm going to have my name on this list. This is going to be awesome. And, you know, maybe not why I'm going to have my leg amputated, but, but this is the, this is one of my big goals. And I've always been a big goal setter and, you know, still am to this day. And, and, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was the, that was the beginning of, of this journey for me. And Jared, have you always been an out and out sprinter even before your amputation? No, um, I was a middle distance to distance runner on, uh, in my high school career and in, in hopeful collegiate career. So, uh, you know, running the 800, the 15, I went all the way up to the 5k, um, in cross country. Um, that one I did not enjoy nearly as much. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely was a little bit more towards the distance. Um, you know, I split sub 50, uh, you know, 400 meter splits on the four by four in high school. So I, I, I obviously had foot speed, but it was uh, it was nothing like what I've had to kind of tr- transition into now. Um, I was still five eight, but about one hundred and fifteen pounds. Um, I do not know how to transfer that to kilos for you, but I was uh, I was uh, about forty pounds, about twenty, almost twenty kilos lighter um, then than I am now, um, and and that's just been a big testament to the weightlifting and training and, and how training has changed and adapted uh, from being a middle distance runner to being a sprinter. And kind of going on to my next question, I was obviously doing my research and looking at your Wikipedia page and saw that you ran the 400 at the World Champs in 2003 in Lyon, uh, 2013, sorry. Uh, is it, is it kind of how I did the question beforehand, is it a bit similar story to Hussein Bolt as to why you kind of switched from the 400 to go down to the, hun- to the hundreds? Or is your story a little bit different completely? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the money event, man. It's the event that people want to see. Yeah, you know, the 400 hurts a lot more too. So, yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that definitely it's part of that. You know, if you look at the, at the competitive field from a T44 standpoint in the Paralympic world, the 100 meters is where it's at. 
Um, the 200 meters as well is extremely deep and there's not a lot of guys running the 400. You know, you do have some great athletes doing some great things in the four, but it's not the sought after event. It's not the one that, you know, is necessarily selling all the tickets and, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's the race I want to be part of. And although it's polar opposite to what I grew up around and, and although it's, you know, completely different mentality than what I, you know, am used to, um, you know, I'm, I'm transforming myself. I, I'm, I'm taking it as a new challenge and, um, you know, I'd, I'd say I've done a pretty good job at, at, at running it, uh, and, uh, competing in it pretty successfully. So, um, yeah, we're going to continue to continue to pursue that, that hundred and hopefully I can, uh, one of these days get a Paralympic title or a world title under my belt. And a lot, what a lot of people might not know about you is that you, that you say on your website is you've become that your nation's fastest amputee. And in fact, your speed surpasses not, uh, surpasses that of many NFL running backs. When you say that, do you mean like over the 400 dash then? No, um, as far as top speed's concerned, you know, a lot of NFL athletes, um, a good majority of them have that burst at 10 meters, but you know, top speed, you know, you could say it's some of the top receivers and some of the top running backs, you know, maybe are in a little different league. But if you, if you look at the top speed of, of, of myself, of Richard Brown, of Johnny Peacock, you know, our, our meters per second top speed is equivalent to a lot of the, the top sprinters in the world. Um, and, and, and which would put us as faster, faster than most NFL players in the world. And, and so, you know, our, our hindrance is our start, and, and our finish. So because of having a blade, you know, not being asymmetrical out of the blocks, it takes us a little bit longer to get going. But once we're up at our top speed, there's, there's not a lot of athletes able-bodied or, 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 or alike that, that can run at the speeds that we can run. Um, and, and I think we've all been on um, treadmills or force plates that have elicited the, those numbers and those results. And, and in terms of, and then the next question, which I've had somebody answer a uh, question for me to ask you, how long did it take you to get used to your running blade in, 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 in the first instance? And that comes from Hannah Moore. Yeah, you know, I think the, uh, the first day I put that thing on, um, you know, it was like kind of a kid on a bicycle for the first time, you know, where it's, it's like, okay, I know I can do this. I know I can, you know, I've seen it done a hundred times over again, but it, it was, it was unfamiliar. It was something new. Um, and just like anything, you know, you have to trust that the wheels are going to keep turning around and, and that it's going to keep propelling you forward. And for me, I had to trust that the blade was going to be there and that I was going to be able to keep, keep moving forward. Um, you know, based on people that were there and that have watched um, tons of amputees run for the first time, they said it was the most natural that they've ever seen. And, you know, I think that that's a testament to my background in running. Um, but it was one of those things that, you know, I, ha- I literally just had to trust the device. And, and that became pretty quick and pretty easy for me. The, the leg that I had for about three years before the amputation was so deformed and, and, and filled with so much pain that, you know, having something that was not painful that, that allowed me to run and be active again, it was kind of like, oh, this is amazing. You know, I was like a kid in a candy store just taking off and having a blast and looking at all the different options and sizes and things to do. So, um, you know, I think that my passion and, and excitement, you know, kind of, you know, overcame my mental fear potentially of, you know, well, what if it's not as comfortable? What if it's not the same? And I didn't even look at it as, you know, comparison from what it used to be like to what it was because I hadn't run for four years. I forgot what it was like to be able to run, you know, comfortably and without pain. So, you know, it, it has become my new normal. Uh, and, and, you know, now I, I mean, I can't imagine running with two legs now. It just doesn't, you know. Maybe one second. 
Somebody at the door, so I'll just pull. It's just become a normal feeling. And then in terms I, of, because I was fortunate to uh, see Johnny Peacock's running style, like running gate before, oh God, when this would have been, this is going back before London 2012, and kind of seeing how he's progressed. It's like, because you're looking in, oh, this might be the, uh, we had a pre-Paralympic camp, I'm going to say 2011, and you're thinking, he had aspirations of obviously Olympic medals. You're thinking, I can't see it from technique wise, but it's kind of okay. You, you've got a drive to get there, so it's kind of seeing well how you guys you can see, see it. Because I did biomechanics at university, it's very mental, very fundamental aspect of it. Because the quicker you go, is you've got more control over it than say the slower ones in the event so it's kind of do you feel that to kind of go on to my next question being slightly shorter than other guys do you think you're at a slight disadvantage from say a stride length you know um i think it comes down to the to the game of of control and and the angle that you push out of the block set you know sprinting is is uh, not a um you know, the cookie cutter sport. It's not, this is exactly how everyone does it. And this is the only way to achieve success in sprinting. And I think Usain Bolt's a great example of, of how that's the case. Um, you know, what you need to do and, and what my coach and I have, are continually working on is what's the best way for me to run hundred meters. Um, you know, if you watch the prelims of, of London 2017 versus the finals of London 2017, I was at 60 meters faster in the finals than I was in the prelims, but the end result of the race was a lot slower and a lot different than what the prelims um, to the finals was. And, and a lot of that's a testament to being patient and, and long and, and, and technically sound and pushing uh, a, a lot uh, deeper into the race in the prelims and, and versus the finals. I was a little anxious, a little rushed at the beginning and got up and started running a little too soon. So, you know, the, the hundred, you know, as, as most people, you know, in the sport know, and, and some people out of sport know is not necessarily who gets to the line the fastest, but who slows down the slowest. And that's a pretty interesting concept, but you know, all the, every sprinter is slowing down as they get into the line. And so how can we set up the race best um, for me to slow down the, the least at the end of the track. And, you know, that's one thing that Johnny has done a really great job of. And some of the other guys, you know, as far as double APTs are concerned, it's a little bit different. They're speeding up all the way through the line. So that's why it looks like that. Cause they actually are doing that. Um, you know, so, you know, d- definitely for, for Flores and some of those guys, um, it's going to look a little bit different, but for able-bodied athletes and then for, um, single amputees that's that's kind of the breakdown of that race so you know I, I wouldn't say there's more a, more of an advantage to being shorter I think in a 60 meter race you could see you could argue and say yes um, you know our, our goal and I know Johnny and you just look at his running style with biomechanics you know his his goal is to take as little least amount of steps as possible he wants to he wants to increase that stride length as do I you know there's a diminish of no return where you're you know you're over striding and you're not able to elicit the power necessary to you know keep your your stability but um you know there is that window where you know guys like myself 5'8 Johnny 5'8 5'9 we're 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 striving towards hey let's let's use our advantage of of um, angles out of the blocks let's get that power in the, the right position but let's really make sure that we can get up and and uh and create some some uh, longer strides with the power 
um, as we're as we're at our top speed. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that again, it allows us to get out pretty quick on some of the other guys, but. Um, you know, our focus is not necessarily winning, winning the 30 meters, it's winning the 100 meters. So, you know, it's not a 30 meter race, it's not a 60 meter race, it's a 100 meter race. And so, um, you know, everyone's trying to figure out how to do that best. But you say kind of, do you, do you think it comes down to a mindset uh, between the prelims and the final that you have that element of uh, tightness and things? Obviously, I was an athlete, so I can understand that there's the, the, the certain aspects of obviously there's more importance on yeah in the final obviously getting to the final it's it opens up multiple doors because in theory any number of one to six can win the race if you're in the, if you're in the if you just get you just got to get there so it kind of that pressure comes off but like the tightness that obviously you 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 um brought up uh just before do you think it's kind of a mental thing to do with the, the the extra pressures that come with a final? Yeah, I think it was two part for me there. Um, you know, I went back to kind of my natural tendencies and my natural habit, um, which is to get choppy and quick out of the blocks to be really explosive. And, you know, most pictures of me through about 50, 60 meters, I was ahead of Johnny, you know, and then at 60 meters, he it continued his acceleration and top speed. He took it a little further down the track. So, you know, part of it was, yeah, the nerve, the nerves got me, you know, away from my race plan and back to my kind of tendencies. And, and historically, I have been really quick through 30, really quick through 50, and then just tried to hold on. Um, you know, when I'm running against some of the top guys in the world, I can't hold on. When I'm running against other guys that are, you know, still trying to sharpen up their craft, I'm able to hold them off. So, you know, I, I I have been able to get away with, in some regards, um, not running the most consistent or best races and still having decent performances. Um, but one thing that, you know, my coach has brought into light and that we've learned over this past year is that we um, have been trying to focus on my strength, which has been my thir- first 30 meters instead of the rest of the race. And one of the things that we're starting to do now is, Hey, we, we know, we know my start's going to be fast. So let's, let's slow it down knowing it's still going to be fast. Let's elongate it knowing it's still going to be fast and help set up the end half of the race. And that's what we worked a lot of the last half of this year on. Um, and I executed it great in the prelims. And it's just, it, it was, it's such a new mindset that when I got into the finals, when I got into that pressure, you know, the gun went off and I just got a little excited and he <laughs> back to my, you know, original tendency, which is just get out, go, 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 go. And, uh, you know, uh, at 10 meters, it's, it's one of those races. It's really hard to run because at 10 meters, I knew exactly what happened and I knew exactly what the outcome was going to be like. And so I'm, I'm running down the track, holding my breath, hoping someone makes a mistake because I knew I made a mistake. Um, and you know, unfortunately wasn't, wasn't fortunate enough for that to have happened. And, you know, Johnny ran a brilliant race, um, and he ran the, ran the race he needed to run to, to win. And this probably moves on to a great point that uh, Josie Wendell asks, is there anything better than the rush right before the gun sounds? And if there is, what is it? Yeah, you know, I, I would say probably not. Um, the The reality is, and, it, and it's, it's, it's the perfect, like, calm before the storm. If you've ever seen a movie where, you know, people are stuck in a hurricane all of a sudden it's just peaceful and they're in the eye of the hurricane. It's, it's kind of like that moment where it's just like chaos and, and hype and excitement. And, and then it gets just the whole stadium gets quiet and they say, you know, on your marks and you're st- you're going through your routine now. And, and uh, you know, it is, it's this 
adrenaline rush, but then there's this level of peace and calmness in, involved, um, you know, to, you know, and I believe that that peace is necessary to be able to execute, you know, and run well. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's how, you know, for everybody, everybody's different, but how long are they going to hold us down there? Then how long are they going to hold us in set? You know, you kind of just have to be used to different transitions and different time frames. Um, you know, so that you could stay composed and, uh, and, and when the gun goes off, let it all out. I think that's a good answer. And to, yeah, but then how long you're going to be held in the blocks is going to depend very much on the, t- the, what would be the word, the starters kind of how they work. Cause then you don't want to be, we don't even want to preempt it now because of the risk mm-hmm. of being DQ'd. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a tough game. You know, most coaches coach their athletes to be the last person into the blocks. Um, and if that was the case, then no one would get in the blocks and the race would never go off. Um, you know, at some point you've got to, got to get in the blocks, you know, so everyone's kind of doing the routine and they're looking out of their peripheral vision and corner of their eyes going, you know, who's getting in their blocks last, you know, do I need to extend my, my time a little bit here? But at the same time, you don't want to be that guy, you know, that's just waiting for everyone to get in the box and start your routine because someone's going to put a hand up or you're going to get asked to, you know, speed up and all that jazz. So, you know, we, we respect, you know, I think the athletes all respect each other enough to get in in a, in a timely manner. And then really it's just up to, you know, the starter's discretion. Is everyone still, is everyone making a movement? You know, how long do I want to hold them before we go into set? And those things like that, and and that's you know that's on that's on every starter's different in that regard, and um, you know that I think that in London and all, all my races for sure they were they were consistent and they were good on that, but um, yeah, it, it is it's definitely part of the game, and and uh, you know you, you, part of it is a little mind game with some of the athletes, and and part of it you can't let it throw you off of your game plan as well, so uh, you know definitely is a a cool aspect of of sprinting. I'd have never thought you'd go to that that extent of being in the blocks as well. Obviously, you see it from the showmanship, obviously to the cameras and things like that. But to to not, I won't say stoop to that. But you wouldn't think it would go as far as to to be in, even in the blocks. Who wants to be last for the hundred meters to get even that little bit of um, what would it be? Last bit of one upmanship on somebody else. Yeah, and I think I think it's a little bit less of the one up and a little bit more of you know you just don't want to be sitting in the blocks for thirty seconds you know so you don't want to just rush down and get in the blocks and be ready to go for everyone else because then you're just sitting there you're on your hands you're you're kind of balanced your your muscles are getting a little anxious and potentially tight and all that so you know there's there's that mutual respect where you don't want to hold the field up. But there's also that desire of I really do want to be the last person in because I don't want to be in that position for very long. I want to be in the position for two seconds, set, go, you know. Um, and that's how it is at practice most days, you know, that not not your coaches, you know, aren't holding you for 30 seconds down in set because, you know, you got 10 athletes out there and everyone's trying to get work done. And, you know, you just you, you don't you don't fully practice that all, all the time. So, um, yeah, it is. It's, it's amazing. There's little things that you don't think about, you know, that, that, that do actually happen behind the scenes. But does it come to that nature? Does it come back down to keeping that elasticity in the muscle? And obviously the, you want to keep the fibers as explosive as possible. Is that why, is that kind of mindset that you want to do that? Yeah, and, and I think, uh, yeah, just, just relax. You're less, less things to think about. 
Um, it's a psychology game as well, man. You know, uh, the, again, the longer you're down there, the more you're rehearsing through your race. You're trying to keep your mind clear. You're trying to stay relaxed. You just want to execute um, what you've been, been prepping. You're going through one or two cues in your head. You know, uh, the more you spend spend stagnant time right in a high energy situation, you know, the more potential, you know, you've got things that could go through your head that could distract you. Um, and so, again, it's just part of that, um, you know, you want that time frame to be as concise as, as possible. And you talked about, obviously, from the, your new race plan, uh, you've implemented that this year's World Championships. Yeah. Is it that you've got with your coach and yourself in mind, um, have you got it that by slowing down your start a little bit, is it to put extra pressure on the other athletes by tweaking that a little bit? Because obviously you, you, you can sometimes beat people at the start because they're, they're panicking already because they're behind. Yeah. You know, I think having that fast start actually causes a little bit more panic than, than, than slowing it down a little bit. Um, but you know what we've noticed, it's really interesting. Um, it's, it's really slowing it down in the sense that I'm finishing every step when I, when I'm, when I'm rushing or anxious or, 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 or you know, kind of really quick to 10 meters, what we noticed is I was actually taking shorter steps. I wasn't, I wasn't finishing my, my push every time. So if I'm getting 85 to 90% out of, out of each leg, you know, versus a hundred percent. So my, my, I kind of over-exaggerate the motion for me. That's kind of how I have to think about it. Um, What we've found is I'm actually faster to 10 meters. I'm actually faster to 30 meters, but I'm using a lot less energy and I'm getting down to the track in, in a position, a posture that's going to allow me to hit top speed later in the track and decelerate shorter. So like I said, we implemented this about halfway through this season. We made the decision about six to seven weeks before um, London that, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's make this kind of the, the start. And, and, and I was able to do it consistently enough in practice that it seemed like it, it would be a good choice to make. Um, and then, you know, we basically knew, hey, if – if my guy default to my, you know, old start, it's okay. You know, we're going to take what we get and, and, and move forward with it and continue to implement it into this next season. And, you know, I, I, I truly believe if this start, um, you know, and, or I don't want to say if, and when this start becomes my, my new start, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a tough guy to beat, you know, on the circuit because I think it's my one part. I don't set up my race. I've rarely set up my race well. Um, and, and when I, get to the point where I, where I can do that. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. But then you talk about it like in that way, it's probably it's consistency, but the end game is Tokyo. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's, and that's where, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of have asked me because I made a blade change this year. I, I we, we changed up how we trained, um, just off of some things that we've, we learned. This is my second year with my coach. We changed up a few things. Um, and, and then we, we changed, you know, started working on a different race strategy, um, both in the hundred and, uh, we're kind of beginning to now work into the 200 a little bit as well. And so, you know, people are kind of always like, why are you making changes on such a big year? Why are you always making changes? Like, you know, people, I feel like a tendency is people are afraid of change. And one of the things that I've 
uh, but come to love is change because I think change elicits uh, an opportunity to learn. Change elicits better performances sometimes. And if it elicits bad performances, you learn from and eventually have better performances. So, you know, I'm a huge proponent of making changes. I'm a huge proponent of adaptation, um, it, even in times where there's, uh, you know, big meets going on because what better place to practice than a big, big stage? And, um, and, and hey, did it work? Great. What do we do different? All right, let's move forward and, and continue to make adjustments. So, um, you know, I think the changes that we made this year were great changes. I think they put us in a great position to, um, you know, enjoy this, you know, quote unquote off year from a world championship and really fine tune some of those things. 2019 is going to be a year of, of um, perfection and 2020 is going to be the year of execution. Well, I think, I think, do you find that it's people that are outside the sporting sphere that ask you those type of questions or is it? Absolutely. But I think from an athlete perspective, it's better to quote unquote, get things wrong now and in a lesser event to a certain degree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't knock the world champs completely, but you want to be peaking and this probably every athlete would say that in the Olympic games, Paralympic games. You're absolutely right, man. You know, and, and, uh, you know, to, to discredit <laughs> or to, to potentially, you know, sound as if a discrediting world championships, you know, I, I won a bronze and a gold this past year. You know I mean? We, what we did was is it's working, you know? And, and, uh, so, so we, we changed within our wheelhouse, you know, we, we're not, you know, we're not making changes that are, are going to cause, you know, potential injury or risk of, you know, really poor performance. If we would have seen that in the first few weeks, we would, we would go right back to what we were doing before. So, um, although, ch- ch- you know, change on the outside seems a lot larger than it, you know, what it really actually is, you know, between my coach and I and, and, and our team. So, um, you know, everything that we do is, is calculated and it's intentional and we believe the change that we're going to make is for the better. You know, I think that's the reason people try to change is because they want to be better, not worse. And so, um, you know, we, we just have to trust that system and that process. And, um, you know, every now and then you get some athletes that are like, I don't understand what are you changing. And, and at that, I'm just like, you know, that's where it's a great opportunity to encourage them and, and, and speak into, um, you know, the importance of change and the, and, and this, and, and what, where change leads. And I think that's just a, a learning, learning process. And, and every athlete at some point gets to learn that and then gets to apply it. And then uh, this question might be a little bit controversial. Obviously, with uh, what the IPC has brought in with uh, the rule changes they're looking to implement now going forward, um, I was a bit baffled a little bit in terms of I could see uh, why they would maybe want to um, bring in a height limit for the double amputees. But then to go as far as to scrap in every world record till I think it was into the 1970s was a little bit over the top. And it was just to get your take on how, how, which way you see the kind of the movement going in terms of that controversial question. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've I've been a proponent. One of the reasons I haven't run the 200 meters since 2013 in Lyon is because of um, the combined classes, you know, I, I, I think that they've made it harder on themselves, um, just by trying to come up with new systems and trying to come up with new, um, scales to regulate the blades. Um, you know, it, it, it can, it can be, and should be as simple as just separating categories. And, and, and that's how you create the most competitive field. Listen, in a hundred meters, yes. Is it cool to see someone run from 30 meters behind and, and potentially win at the line? 
maybe for the fans. I'm sure it's like it's not for the athletes. It's a it's a nightmare for for an athlete. You know. Well, it's you know he's coming though, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's getting out and making sure that you can hold them off. And in the 200, it's impossible. Um, you know, and and so yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of tough if if you want to create a, a field of great races put put like people together you know you you have a whole race of 4300 meter runners they're all gonna have a slow start and they're all gonna have a fast finish but they're gonna be fighting the whole way down the track you know you put a whole list of 44s out there we're all gonna have a pretty good start we're all gonna have great top speed and we're all gonna decelerate at the finish but it's whoever set up the race better is gonna win and that's that's what the that's what the sport is um you know and, and so i think you know combining and, and switching you know things like that you know causes um, causes it just, you know, yeah, okay, cool. You get to see a good finish, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it changes the sport up a little bit. So I think they've made it harder on themselves trying to change the system. I think they should have just completely separated it and just leave it at that. Um, but you know, the, their decisions that they've made, if, um, you know, have been, I think based on a lot of, a lot of people's opinions and GBs and conversations, you know, and, and so it, it is what it is now. I, you know, as far as scrapping all the world records, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of current athletes that are world record holders. They're going to be, um, you know, you know, hurt potentially by this. But I also think that, um, you know, they've got, also got a new ch- new chance to wipe the slate clean and, and start from scratch and, and, you know, reset some, some records. So it's, it's a bummer, but at the same time, it's, you know, um, I'd say for athletes that are, aren't running anymore. I think if they're on the record list, that's, that's a hard, hard pill to swallow. But for those that are, um, you know, competitive here now, it, it, it can be kind of a refreshing opportunity. So, um, just kind of depends on which way you look at it. I think, I think the, the way you raise it, it's probably the one that is the most difficult to explain to probably the larger population as to why they, uh, categories come, um, combined off the top of my head i think it's the only paralympic sport that you'll see it done no nobody else will do it you're thinking well like you say uh, their reasoning historically you can understand it because with the technical logical advancements the double mbc would have been always slower anyway but now with them being and this is my personal opinion now uh, them being able to manipulate their height, they're going to have, oh, well, until that new ruling came in, they're always going to have supremacy because if you can make yourself taller, in theory, you you could be faster than an able-bodied person because it doesn't respond like a normal limb would do. It's If it's gaining more, uh, like you're saying, you're, you're gaining more top speed towards the end of the race, well, you've got no chance. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I th- I would take it even a step further than that, James, and say that not only is the potential to manipulate height, and, and I think the IPC's tried to somewhat regulate that, but they're they're allowed to do something unique that, that unilateral amputees don't have access to, and able bodies do to a certain extent, but they're allowed to have asymmetry. So you take two of the exact same blades that are designed to propel they're, they're designed to, uh, to spring, um, to explode someone down the track and you give them two of them that are allowing them to be asymmetrical in that sense, then, uh, you know, you, you put them in the right hands of a, of a, of 
an educated user and, and there's a potential to do some superhuman things. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact that these athletes that are using these blades are doing unbelievable amounts of training and, and, and have to have these, uh, you know, amazing ability of strength and core and, and proprioception and spatial awareness. And, and it's, and it's an absolute amazing athletic feat, but you do, or you are playing with technology. You are playing with the uh, potential to, um, you know, propel yourself in a way, you know, I, Liam was, you know, had a pretty loud rhetoric while during the uh, London 2017 game saying he's going to be faster than Usain Bolt. And what he's saying is I'm not going to train hard to beat Usain Bolt. I'm going to pay or hope a company builds million dollar legs to allow me to be jet propelled down a track. And I mean, you know, they've got cars that are faster than Usain Bolt. So at this point they're you know, we're, we're not playing with, you know, a human ability. We're playing with technology. And, and so it's, you know, that, that's been, you know, kind of put me off a little bit because the reality is, is, is training and effort and human spirit is greater than technology all, all over. And that's what Paralympic and Olympic sport is about. It's human effort. It's, it's, it's testing your body. It's pushing it to the limits. It's not, well, I can't do that. So I'm going to get a device that's going to allow me to do that so I can be better. And, and that's, that's where, I, where, where I draw the line and where my frustration potentially is when it comes to, you know, the regulation aspect of things. Because if you let technology continue to move forward, yeah, yeah, I believe that, you know, people with disabilities need to have the resources to live a normal life. Um, but at the same time on a, on a competitive scale, um, you know, there is uh, a, a line of, you know, effort, training, hard work, and then robotics. Well, he kind of came out of nowhere as well last year. You're thinking, who's, who's this brash uh, young man for even over, over here and not being involved in normal. It's like, he, he, it was quite funny in terms of, uh, uh, I'm just gonna turn up and see what happens. <laughs> but you think when he got, it's it's probably you would say he was at the start of the meet, probably quite introverted. But then is it him playing an act, and he's obviously now become off the back of it, got notoriety to some extent, and become more famous, and he is more outspoken. Or is it a bit like? Uh, you could probably say uh, on par with LeVar Ball and you say like outlandish statements just to get in the media. So it's, it, is it, it's quite a difficult one. Is it where, what line does he follow? And like, like you were saying in terms of the technology, it's, uh, well, it was a massive article when uh, last year with, with doping, like technology doping. It's, it's get, it's probably, you could I won't say it's as bad as actual doping itself, but it's going it's probably like a fine line of like you were saying, if you're not gonna train and you're gonna use technology to kind of be better than the field, well, it kinda it's definitely going away from its actual core values of Paralympics because the developing countries, like we were saying off air, have got no hope in hell then because they haven't got the resources financially to be out, be able to go out there and get the latest technology. Yeah. Well, I definitely, you know, I, I want to say, you know, Liam, Liam's been around since 2011. You know, he ran at the world championships in Christchurch in 2011. And, uh, you know, I know he took some time off, but you know, he, he trained his ass off and got himself in a position to, you know, do what he did in, in um, Rio, you know, that wasn't, 
Um, you know, if you look at his height, he didn't jack his height up to its maximum. You know, he, yes, he ran on blades that allowed him to be asymmetrical and that's great, but he, he worked his butt off and, 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 you know, earned and deserved every, every medal that he ran in Rio. And I think what you said, you know, he, um, saw it as a great opportunity. He was a little bit more on the introverted side and he became extremely extroverted near the end of that event and, and has used that in a magnificent way, um, to build a, build a name and a brand for himself. You know, the, the part that kind of put me off a little bit was when he ran 1091, I think in the prelims, which is the first time he's ever gone under 11 seconds. And then two months later, he says he's going to run nine, four faster than Usain Bolt. You know, he still hasn't beat every Paralympian athlete, Paralympic athlete yet, you know, and, and he, you know, he's taken a shot at Usain Bolt. So would I say that that was to build a brand and create a name and, and some spark? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, 10, 10, nine and nine, four, that's 1.5 seconds. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a large margin there. Um, you know, the fastest, uh, APT to ever, ever run was 1056 Alon in, in, in 2013 in the Olympic stadium with two, two prosthetic blades. So he's saying he's going to run 1.2 seconds faster than that. So, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, if the statement would have been a little bit more tangible or close to something he's done, uh, I might take him a little bit more face value, but, um, you know, it's, it's obvious that that was a, uh, political stunt it was a media stunt and uh and he's made it pretty clear that it's going to be technologically driven um and and so you know that that's that's not what the paralympic movement's about well i know it's it's kind of it's a gray area now in terms of how you would define the paralympic movement because there's always been talk of you know like the merger of the two games you're thinking, well, uh, that would if you did that, you kind of going away from its core values of being, well, wheelchair technically at the beginning, and what the Olympics would take would be the upper echelons of of the event. So it'd be probably the more um, acceptable things in society. So say amputees, visually impaired. Um, and the things of that one, so and everything else would probably get chucked in the garbage. So it's so thinking. Well, as opposed to that, I'd probably say um, I see no reason why they couldn't expand the Paralympics because, as you know, <laughs> the accommodations there and it's not used to its full capacity. Well, in most cases, it's not used to its full capacity. There's still room for uh, more athletes to be there and. I think with with t- television coverage getting better, I think it's probably still more more. It's probably you can test it. Obviously, the US is uh, that much further behind us over here in the UK. And as a British athlete, I could say, well, there's still long, long scope to go in terms of it being on par with the Olympic athletes. And you're thinking, well, we jokingly, oh, I I I can joke with general public where I live. When they saw the the Olympic team has done well in the games, yeah, and the the Paralympic team probably beat that in the first week, <laughs> like the medal total. So it's so it's and I and I can back that statement up because I because I know I, I might be joking and like jovially saying that, but as long as the athletes perform, that's fact. So that's it's right. so it's a it's a difficult one in terms of uh, people say oh there was good coverage. Mm. Not, not really. It depended on. I'd say it was predominantly 
if you were in the big, I'm going to say the big three, big four, so say athletics, swimming, cycling, well, what would be the fourth one? I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, but they were obviously emphasis on that predominantly. You're thinking, well, well, my, my, my mom brought up a good point with like sporting events. Why don't say, you know, like the international uh, broadcasters, be it well, which yourself, NBC, NBNC, and things like that, pay the host broadcaster to only show their own athlete. Mm. And that's obviously, well, it, it wouldn't be as large a spectacle, but you would then get to see your your, your countrymen compete. And, and, and probably, but then I probably argued to that, well, it was probably, she was saying the ones that are likely to do well. Yeah, but there are things that come out of nowhere sometimes and win medals and that might be an event they don't pick up. But it's one way to probably get it to a larger, larger audience that way because then you're focusing primarily on the events that you're competing as opposed to trying to show everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think the, uh, you know, I've, I've said this for a few years. I think the, the first step we need to do as a, as the Paralympic movement is to distance ourselves from the Olympics. You know, I think, I think trying to align ourselves with them is our biggest Achilles heel. Um, you know, we're trying to be like a brand that's done pretty well, but why don't we do better than that brand? You know, what successful business that says, oh, look, they do it really well. Let's be just like them. No one. The successful business says, hey, these guys do it really well. Let's do it better than them. And let's do it in a new way. And let's do it fresh. And, and that's, that's where I feel like the Paralympic Committee has a huge flaw. And, and our, our mindset is, is mediocrity. And so we're going to continue to elicit mediocre, mediocre coverage, uh, mediocre uh, you know, support and resources and finances and all those things, you know, until we say, hey, we are going to be um, a great uh, standalone movement. We're going to do things better than the Olympics. We, we don't want to be the Olympics because we are the Paralympics. I think that you hear this rhetoric of Paralympic pride and you, you hear it, but you don't see it. You know, you've got to the point where you've got athletes, you're the best athletes in your movement are saying they want to leave and compete against, you know, able-bodied athletes. And it's like, wait a second, you know, do you see Usain Bolt saying he wants to fly to Mars to race aliens? Cause there's no one on the planet to beat him. No, he's, he's proud of being the fastest man in the world. And he gets the recognition he deserves. Why? Because they built a brand that's allowed him to do that. I think the Paralympics has the same opportunity. They're just not taking it. I think that's going to be a difficult one. It's going to be a, uh, to see, well, I won't say the Olympic movement, but to see what athletics does when Hussein Bot decides to retire. Who will then, you can't say step into his shoes, but kind of be that figurehead kind of poster boy for, for the athletics. So that one will be because it, he's kind of obviously grabbed it by the coattails and brought it out of you know doping allegations and, and whatnot and kind of made it kind of sexy again in terms of he's very much a showman and, and things like that. Obviously, uh, within the UK, I think because of the coverage in London, a lot of that, more so or Johnny Peacock, uh, Hannah Cockcroft, and etc. I know probably forgetting loads and loads of people. You got the likes of David Weir. They are household names in the UK. They are probably on par 
with probably well most Olympic athletes, if not higher than that, and yeah. people would probably say, "Oh, if you saw a poster, that's so and so." Whereas in the past, it's like you said, it's been a second-class citizen. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, I think the IAAF and athletics is really excited that Wayne Van Niekerk came on board last year and and blew up because uh, you know I think he's going to be a quick, easy, uh, soft transition for Bolt's retirement. Um, there's a lot of great athletes. You look at Michael Johnson back in the day. You know, he kind of had that same vibe and feel. And upon his retirement, you know, Trek didn't go anywhere. The, you know, new new names came up, and you know, maybe we didn't see performances like you know that were elicited by him for a long time, twenty something years before it got broken. And Bolts is going to stand for a very very long time. Um, you know, but I think I think the sport itself is is um, competitive enough and strong enough to withstand. And I think the same thing happen, is, is true for Paralympics. And, you know, even a, a handful of the names that you've spoken are, are a great proof of that. And that's just from Great Britain, you know. So you take you take all the other great athletes in the world. I mean, goodness gracious, Akeem Stewart, Trinidad, and Bago standing throws a javelin 60 meters. I mean, it's ridiculous, you know, some of the things that are happening inside Paralympic sports. So, you know, you show some of that and – uh, on a, on a on a larger scale and and uh, whether you understand athletics or not it can be something that you can fall in love with um, but again i think the biggest uh, issue in paralympics uh, well i would say there's two major issues i think the first issue is um, they don't believe that they can become a household name and they respond in that manner they're 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 happy to hang on to the coattail of the olympics and and uh, until they separate until they have you know the desire to you know uh, take that risk. Uh, they're going to stay in that manner. And then the second thing is, is it's pretty confusing. There's a lot of different disabilities and there's a lot of combined classifications. And until they make it a little bit more cookie cutter, a little bit more uh, self-explanatory, um, you know, the coverage in London has done a great job exp doing explanations and, and having, um, you know, really good blurbs on television to, to help the audience understand that. But until we can make it a little bit more cut and dry, um, it's going to be hard for the public to um, understand what's happening. It's probably that's a difficult one because I got asked a number of years why is so and so in this classification in athletics? It's like no idea. If it's not your discipline, you can't explain it as to well because it'll be I don't know it'd be amputees running with people with four limbs thinking okay. I would say I would think maybe he's got neurological damage to some extent. I, I I don't know. It's it's if it's not in my discipline, I don't know the ins and outs of the classification system. It's 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 a uh, well even in, within your own sport, it's a minefield as it is. It's like if that's the classification I'm in, and who to well who, that's not I I can't I would kind of argue with that argument. Uh, you can obviously appeal your your classification, but then if it's right. it, once that appeal goes through and they decide it's that, that's what it is, and, and things like that. But it's like you were saying, um, we're getting people that are figureheads. I I don't know with with the invention of likes of I don't know Facebook, Twitter. You were saying somebody's thrown a javelin standing sixty meters. When well, theory, that should go viral. I agree, man. No, I, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, social media is an interesting game. Um, you know, 
one person can make a YouTube video doing the dumbest things in the world and get millions of hits all over the place. It's very confusing. Um, you know, my agent jokes about that all the time. He's like, I don't understand. I've got these amazing athletes doing these great things, you know, both able-bodied and Paralympic alike. And, you know, can't get any traction because we got, you know, these guys over here taking videos of them, you know, trying to do a flip off a bridge and they fall, you know, belly flop and make get a billion hits. You know, it's just, I don't understand what the population wants. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's, that's part of it too. And I think it's part of the struggle with, with creating Paralympic awareness is what, what does the population want to see and how can we, uh, you know, create that, um, you know, fill that fill that void and create that that space and fill that space with Paralympic sport it's 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 tough well I think it comes down to well when you say people making a fool out of themselves I think everybody likes to see somebody get hurt when it's not them but in terms of I don't know getting exploits out there it's it's very it's very difficult in terms of sport and excellence because unless it's I don't know a miraculous feat it's all it's I've seen that before it's nothing it well, I won't say it's nothing special yeah. But yeah yeah I I can't say oh I, I can't I well I choose not to run but um I can't do the things that you do so I'd probably stand up and, and, and admire that because it's something I can't achieve but then I I'm probably of that mindset where I can respect what you, you've done and the, the, the kind of tribulations you've got from getting from point A to point B and everything right. in between. Obviously, until I read your, your, your bio, I'd kind of seen the, the sport inside of things and kind of don't think of, okay, what's your life before that? So it kind of opened my, my eyes. And like you were, you were discussing on, on this episode, it's you've had a number of factors that you don't bring up even on the website that you've had to overcome. So it's humbling in that, in that regard that I think, I think probably athletes in general, you kind of put it into not boxes, but it's kind of a sporting mentality where this is, if we use the, like the Olympic site or the analogy, if it's in that block, it's in the past. I can't do anything about it. You got to move forward. So it's kind of, kind of that one. You've kind of, and I probably use it as well. It's that you, you, you don't dwell upon past uh, successes. It's, it's, it's in this box. If you want to discuss it, we can, but I'm not going to boast about what I've, I've done in the past. It's okay. I don't mind other people doing it. Oh, that's all well and good. Cause it, 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 I don't say it gives me an ego boost, but it, it kind of, you kind of take pride on what you do, but you don't like to come across as kind of quite egotistical in that way. Oh, I've done this, so this is, what have you achieved? A kind of mentality. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I, I, I view my past as a, um, as a roadmap to what, what's gotten me to where I am today. Um, and, and I view that roadmap as an, as a, potential to motivate and encourage people, um, not to, uh, magnify me. So, you know, my desire for 
the things that I, you know, the successes that I've had in the past, the obstacles that I've overcome are not to say, look what I've done. What are you doing? But to say, Hey, I've been, you know, I, I, I went through this and I was able to come out the other side and overcome this. I, I hope that this can motivate you to, you know, not look at your circumstance as a um, roadblock, but maybe as a toll booth saying, Hey, you know, I, I'm going to have to stop through here for a second and I may have to pay a little bit of a fee, but I'm going to be able to drive out of here on the other side, you know, in, in, in a, in a manner that, you know, maybe is different. I'm I can leave a little bit of the past behind and, and, and move forward. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I view, um, you know, the circumstances and situations that I've been in. And, and again, you know, I, I don't want to, um, you know, rest in and boast about, well, uh, you know, Hey, remember I did this. Remember what, look what I've done there. You know, it's like, no, Hey, like that's, that's great. And that's a, that's a, a another part of my story. And, and if it, it, at any point, something like that encourages and motivates people, that's awesome. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to take every opportunity that I'm given, um, and, and learn from it and, uh, and, and use it to help sharpen me and, and, and allow me to continue to move forward on endeavors and that, that, that I want to go down. And last question, Jair, before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize this episode into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Um, you know, I, I would say uh, an enlightening inside perspective on Paralympic sport um, and, uh, and the journey of, um, of one athlete. That, is, that has gone through his story and lived his story, but um, I'm sure every other Paralympic athlete and athletes alike can, um, you know, echo and, and uh, parallel their stories along similar experiences. So thanks for sharing your story on the, on, on the Mindset Game podcast. James, thanks for having me, man. It was awesome. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Oh, my God.